Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. The subject of the very first chapter of Franz Fanon's book, Black Skin, White Masks, is language. We can think of it as a dimension of human existence, an aspect of the colonial dynamic. It reveals a number of things with an analysis that Fanon wants to be able to put out there. And it's interesting, he's doing this in language, he's doing this in the French language. So there's already an aspect of, you could say, reflexivity to the very critical analysis that that he's engaging in here. So why language? Well, Fanon brings up a number of points that are kind of common in 20th century philosophy and and more broadly speaking in the understanding of language in culture. So he tells us at the very beginning that it's implicit that to speak is to exist absolutely for the other. And he says, I ascribe a basic importance to the phenomenon of language. That's why I find it necessary to begin with this. This should provide us with one of the elements in the colored man's comprehension of the dimension of the other. The other, are we talking about the white other here? Are we talking about the other black other? Are we talking about the other who is oneself in alienation? Well, all of these. Language is complex, and as we open it up, we get to see what is involved in this existing for the other. Human beings are linguistic beings. We exist through language, and because of language, through a culture or cultures, generally, that we share and also contest with each other. So this is a very important point. And he goes on and says, the black man has two dimensions, one with his fellows, the other with the white man. A Negro behaves differently with a white man and with another Negro. That this self-division is a direct result of colonialist subjugation is beyond question. And so that's an important connection. Language is not just going to be something that we all share it's going to be a sphere in which this bifurcation takes place and alienation from oneself. And actually, since Fanon is using psychoanalytic categories here, a kind of neurosis that gets developed. So language, as he's going to go on, involves an orientation towards more than just you know speaking. And he says, to speak means to be in a position to use a certain syntax to grasp the morphology of this or that language, like we're speaking English right now, and you can understand what I'm saying. If this is a second language for you, you probably had to study aspects of English, like well, our weird spelling system, which is entirely crazy. Only the French probably have a spelling system as, as goofy as ours how we conjugate verbs, all of that sort of stuff. There there are certain skills that you develop with learning a language, but learning a language is way, way more than just mastering the elements of grammar, or even you might say the pragmatics of human communication. He says, it means above all to assume a culture to support the weight of a civilization. Now, obviously not every use of language does that. 
If you're learning something so that you can just communicate with people in a business context and then go home and you know take your tie and shirt off and sit there and watch whatever you're going to watch in, in your own language, it's not quite the same thing. He's talking about taking on a language, though, as something that opens up a mode of access to us a little bit later on. This is actually not a passage I was going to bring up, but it's really apropos. He tells us that there is a psychological phenomenon that consists in the belief that the world will open to the extent to which frontiers are broken down. So the promise in learning somebody else's language, particularly when that's something that isolates you and their culture is in a certain way opposed to your own, but also exploiting it and telling you that your culture is inferior, Learning the language seems like it should open up a number of doors and allow one to shift out of that situation. Learning a language involves some sort of orientation to an entire culture or civilization. A little bit later on, he says, to speak a language is to take on a world, a culture. This is a very important idea. We're going to see this passage come up again. So shifting languages... Shifting dialect is how he talks about it here, means shifting one's thinking. He says, what is the origin of this personality change that we're going to look at in a bit? What is the source of this new way of being? Every dialect is a way of thinking, Damaret and Pinchon said to, through linguists, right? And the, the fact that the newly returned Negro adopts a language different from that of the group into which he was born is evidence of a dislocation, a separation. When we change the way in which we're speaking to people, and you know we can note this in all sorts of phenomena all over the world, world, we change the way that people look at us and we change also the way that we look at ourselves. You know, when I speak and people comment on my Wisconsin accent, which can sometimes be a little bit thick at times, they're saying something about not just the way I talk, but where I, I come from. I remember when I was learning Mandarin and I was doing so with Taiwanese students that there was a certain sort of tough guy dialect that the guys would take on in the way that they would pronounce certain monosyllabic words that the women wouldn't do and actually kind of look down on. Those are dialects. These are quite important. So shifting our language, shifting the dialect that we're in changes our ways of thinking and our ways of being or what we're perceived as being, not just for ourselves, but also for others. So the problematic that he's going to be attacking here is the interrelation between the languages of colonized people and the languages of the colonizers. And now, just to point this out, when we're talking about these phenomena like language, it's not as if somebody who belongs to, say, colonial France at one point in time said, you know, I want to oppress the colonized people I'm going to definitely study my French so that that can be a tool of oppression. He's not saying anything like that. He's talking about much wider and in many cases unconscious dynamics. So going back to, to the very beginning of this, he's talking about the language that, that is being used. And he says that every colonized people, in other words, every people in whose soul an inferiority complex has been created by the death and burial of its local cultural originality, 
finds itself face to face with the language of the civilizing nation, that is with the culture of the mother country. The colonized is elevated above his jungle status in proportion to his adoption of the mother country's cultural standards. He becomes whiter, and this is the dynamic we're going to look at, as he renounces his blackness, his jungle, and we'll talk about how that happens in a moment. But first we should think about this implication. This is an important point about Fanon's analysis. So he's not saying that this is just black and white. Every colonized people, every people in whose soul an inferiority complex has been created by the death and burial of its local cultural originality, finds itself face to face with the language of the civilizing nation. So this, this could, in theory, be applied to empires and colonizers all over the world throughout history. And perhaps, if things don't change, to similar situations even going on today or into the future, hundreds of years from now. So we could think about not just French, European French, and Black Africa and the Antilles and, and other places as well. We might also think about French Indochina too in that comparison where now it's not a matter of blackness, but rather a different ethnicity and set of ethnicities involved. But we could also think about America and English with, with them or the English empire or the Belgians and their imposition of a terrorizing and genocidal regime in Africa, also using the French language. Or we could think about the displacement of so many other languages by Russian or Arabic or Spanish or Hindi or pick whatever we want. We think about the Han Chinese and the current state of ethnic minorities in communist China. So this is a very wide analysis. Now to come back to what, what he's talking about, there is this phenomenon of what we can call double language use. There is what he calls dialect, or he also picks out Creole and Pidgin versus having something like an accent. So what's going on here? When somebody is speaking French, they can speak with a variety of accents. As a matter of fact, my family is French-Canadian on my mother's side, and my mother actually, even though she was you know, fourth-generation American, she grew up speaking French-Canadian in Chicago in a, a certain district. And when she went to France in Paris, because of her thick accent, she got called a peasant. People made fun of her for her French-Canadian accent. So it's quite possible to be you know, singled out regardless of racial lines. As he goes on and he says, there is the city, there is the country, there is the capital, there is the province. Apparently the problem in the mother country is the same. Let us take a Lyonnais, second largest city in France, in Paris. He boasts of the quiet of his city, the intoxicating beauty of the, of the caves of the Rhone, the splendor of the plane trees, and all those other things that fascinate people who have nothing to do. If you meet him again when he's returned from Paris, and especially you don't know the capital, he will never run out of its praises. Paris, city of light. There's an inferiority complex in relation to the capital. So it's not just black and white. It's also different whites within France, right? And it could be Lyon by comparison to some country town over, you know, in, in the West or something like that as well. There's lots and lots of layers of stratification based on how we talk, based on what we talk about. We could have the same accent, but talk about stuff that people think is lower class or, or not that important. Right? So going on a little bit further than this, he says, 
The process repeats itself with the man of Martinique. First of all, on his island, Basse Pointe, Marigot, Grosse Morne, and opposite the imposing Fort de France. And this is the important point beyond his island, right? So people can pile up these ways of talking on top of each other in hierarchies. Now, he does point out something really quite important, though, that does have to do with, with race. This is a little bit further into the chapter. He says, I meet a Russian or a German who speaks French badly. That is, they speak with sort of Russianized or Germanized grammar, right? And they also speak with an accent. With gestures, I try to give him the information he requests. At the same time, I can hardly forget he has a language of his own, a country, and that perhaps he is a lawyer or engineer there. In any case, he is foreign to my group. His standards must be different. When it comes to the case of the Negro, nothing of the kind he has no culture, no civilization, no long historical past. This may be the reason for the strivings of contemporary Negroes to prove the existence of a black civilization to the white world at all costs. Now, we can say that there's been more development in this way and, and that if we think about Hegel's view on Africa as a prime example of this, that, that he has no history. We know that that's nonsense, that's garbage. But Fanon's point is... Yeah, yeah, that's all true. We can talk about all these pre-European colonial situations and civilizations, but until there's recognition that these different ways of speaking are rooted in something that isn't just of the jungle, just of a barbarism, it's not going to matter. And so that's the situation that he's writing from at the time. Speaking in Creole or Pidgin or any sort of black dialects is going to be frowned upon. And there's a dilemma that's posed for people who grow up, say, as he does, in the Antilles or in other places that have been colonized. Do you speak French or do you speak your dialect? You become bilingual in a certain sense within a language family. And then which do you use? This is the phenomenon that we nowadays call code switching, right? where people know how to speak in different ways to different sets of people. And there is a dilemma that is being posed, one of identifying oneself with the universal, which is going to be French, and not just French, but French French, Parisian French, or identifying oneself with where you actually come from, your culture, which has been essentially colonized and, and francified, you could say. And so he, he discusses this at a couple of different points. He tells us that when students from the Antilles meet in Paris, they have these, these two choices. They can stand with the white world, speak French, and then be inclining towards a certain degree of universality, or they can reject Europe, speak in their own dialect with each other, making themselves comfortable in the Umwelt or environment of Martinique. And in that case, they're not going to be taken as seriously if they're approaching universal questions. And not just by the white students or fellow professors or intellectuals, but by each other. This dilemma is imposed because of the prestige associated with proper French, as, as it was called when I was a kid, right? So he says, the surest way of cutting him down is to remind him of the Antilles by exploding into dialect. This must be recognized one of the reasons why so many friendships collapse after a few months of life in Europe. And he talks here about alienation. A little bit earlier, he, he also brings up this, this phenomenon, and he says that 
What do we do with, with somebody who arrives in France? What do we do with somebody who comes back from France? They're posed with these issues, these dilemmas, speak French or lapse into dialect. Every choice comes with a set of commitments and consequences. He also talks about this interesting phenomenon, and it's not just on the part of whites, because he talks about himself choosing not to do it as a doctor, and not just in relation to blacks, but also to Arabs, major part of the French cultural sphere, right? Speaking down to others, meaning using, not according them proper French, but speaking to them in a kind of pidgin or dialect so as to relate to them better. And he talks about a number of different reasons and situations in which people will, will do this. He talks about, you know, for example, running into people in bars or people who've been colonials. He talks about this priest. And why would a person do this? It's, it's a way of infantilizing the other person. And you might do it in a sort of paternalistic way. You're like, well, this is good for them. This way I can relate to them better. But he points out and he says, I've observed this behavior in physicians, policemen, employers. The subject of our study is the dupes and those who dupe them, the alienated. And if there are white men who behave naturally when they meet Negroes, they certainly don't fall within the scope of our examination. I'm talking about people who do, in fact, talk to Negroes this way. He says, it gets down to their level. It puts them at ease. It's an effort to understand them. And he says, well, no, this, this, this really isn't the case. And he says, it makes people angry. Why? Because they are not just pigeon speakers. They are capable of speaking in other ways. And Fanon contrasts this to a couple different cases where he does this, examining a 73-year-old farm woman who has now gone into dementia, and he uses a way of talking to her that's suitable to that. He says, I talk down to this poor woman. I condescend to her in my quest for a diagnosis. This is a stigma of a dereliction in my relations with other people. I shouldn't be doing that. And when I talk, I make it a point always to talk to the Arabs in normal French, and I've always been understood rather than talking down to them. So this is a, this is a choice, right? And a lot of people demand that patois or that creole or that pidgin or that dialect in order to be, be real or authentic or something like that. Fanon is actually rejecting that. He's saying, no, no, that's not an innocent choice. He also talks about how things are even more complex well, maybe they're not more complex. They have, they're complex in their own way for those who are from the Antilles. He talks about how French is used in education and in households from the middle class up. He's talking about people writing in dialect. He says, nothing of the sort in the Antilles. The language spoken officially is French. Teachers keep a close watch over the children to make sure they do not use Creole. Let us not mention the ostensible reasons. It would seem the problem in this. In the Antilles, as in Brittany, going back to this point about you know, people speaking in dialects, there is a dialect and there is the French language. But this is false. Why? The Bretons don't consider themselves inferior to the French people. They have never been civilized by the white man. Were the Bretons that we're talking about? They speak a Celtic-derived dialect, and they're up in the northwest of France, and they've you know existed as kind of a separate people for a long time, an ethnos. He's contrasting that there isn't an inferiority complex as there is in Martinique and the other parts of the Antilles. 
So they insist on using French in education. Don't speak Creole. That's, that's for the lower class people. As a matter of fact, that will eventually die out, hopefully, they think. And he talks about the mastery of French opening, at least in theory, not in practice, however, certain doors. He says very early on, the problem we will confront in this chapter is this. The Negro of the Antilles will be proportionally whiter. That is, he will come closer to being a real human being in direct ratio to his mastery of the French language. I am not unaware that this is one of man's attitudes face to face to being. A man who has a language consequently possesses the world expressed and implied by that language. So by having French, the Antillian is able to overcome, at least in theory, not actually in practice, however, this racial dynamic, able to treat him or herself as having a higher status. And he actually does talk, this is a little bit later on, he says, to speak a language is to take on a world of culture. The Antilles Negro who wants to be white will be the whiter as he gains greater mastery of the cultural tool that language is. Now, how is this going to work? It works within the Antillean situation, and you might say within the colonized black world. It also works to a certain extent in France, so long as certain conditions hold, in the mother country, you could say. Right? And he talks here about the privileged position of the Antillians. He talks about them, as, as he says, ruling the black roost. And again, we have linguistic examples here. He says, I've known people born in Dahomey or the Congo who pretend to be natives of the Antilles. I've known and still know Antilles Negroes when they are suspected of being Senegalese. Why? Why? What's going on there? Why, why care about that background? Because there is a hierarchy. The Antilles Negro is viewed as more civilized than the African, closer to the white man, and this difference prevails not only in back streets and on boulevards, but also in public service and the army. And he talks about the relation between the Senegalese and, and Antillians in the military. He talks about people trying to pass as belonging to the Antilles by birth or things like that and ridicules some of this. He goes on and he brings this up again later on. A Senegalese learns Creole, right? The viewed as an inferior language in the Antilles in order to pass as an Antilles native. I call this, he says, alienation. The Senegalese is alienating him or herself from themselves, from their background in Senegal to try to take on a new ethnicity, essentially, by learning Creole. And then he goes on, he says, the Antilles Negroes who know him never weary of making jokes about him. I call this a lack of judgment. They don't realize that they're also caught up within this, this linguistic dynamic as, as well. And we can come back to this focus on the mastery of French language. He thinks that the Antillean situation is in many respects different than that of other members of this, this entire colonized sphere, and in particular other black writers. He goes on and he says that in the Antilles, historically it must be understood the Negro wants to speak French because it's the key that can open doors which were still barred to him 50 years ago. In the Antilles Negro situation, who comes within this study, we find a quest for subtleties, for refinements of language, so many further means of proving to himself he's measured up to the culture. So there isn't this, let's return to Creole, 
Instead, it's let's make our French the best French it can possibly be so that we can gain access to what French culture provides to us. And we'll close here with, with this discussion he has of Jean-Paul Sartre. This is an Orphée Noir, which prefaces the Anthologie de la Nouvelle Poésie et Malgache, tells us that the black poet will turn against the French language. Interestingly, what does Fanon say? He says that does not apply to the Antillian. That may apply to others, but that's not going to apply in the Antilles. Why? Because in the Antilles, French is, you could say, that's what they've decided upon. It's the sign of superiority, of you know, the possibility of opening these doors. But it's also the index of a continuing alienation due to racism, due to colonialism, due to all of these other factors that he is describing in the book, which induce this psychodynamic that he's, that he's engaged in analyzing. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.